I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Aldi are now recruiting selectors at our NACE Regional Distribution Center. And we're on the search for people who look to be challenged every day, who can make quick decisions and take ownership of their role, who work hard and take pride in the knowledge that our customers and stores are relying on you to make sure everything is where it needs to be, when it needs to be. Aldi Logistics Careers. Apply online at aldirecruitment.ie. Aldi means more. In this season of Unobscured, we will follow Grigory Rasputin's transformation from a peasant at the crossroads of history to a monster at the center of far too many legends. And in the process, learn how he took the weight of a fallen empire with him to the grave. Join us as we make our way into the burning palaces of Imperial Russia to dig up the truth about Grigory Rasputin. Unobscured Season 4 is available now. Listen and subscribe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Jen Kirkman, host of the Anxiety Bites podcast. Take a weekly deep dive into anxiety as I share stories from my decades of anxiety disorders and recovery, as well as candid and down-to-earth interviews with esteemed experts in the field of anxiety who are here to help us all have our anxiety bite less. Subscribe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. In April of 2012, someone from my local community in southern Brooklyn sends me a text message asking me if I'm going to be present at the evening prayer, the Maghrib prayer, as we call it. And I told them, yeah, I'd be there. So we meet up after the evening prayer. We're walking towards his car. This person happened to be a police officer at the time. And he asks me if I have my phone on me. And I tell him, yeah, I have my phone on me. And I give him my phone. And he takes his phone and he wraps them both in a cloth. And he opens up his car trunk and he throws a cloth with both of our phones into the trunk, closes the trunk and says, I need to speak to you without these present. And he says, I said, I just came back from the precinct. I said, okay. He said, listen, you're being watched. There is a file with your name and your photos in it. Be careful. And we can say we're not surprised, but we're still shocked. It was a feeling of dread, a feeling of nervousness, a feeling of deep caution. You know, like, what the hell are we doing that's, like, making this agency come after us? And why us? It 
was revealed the NYPD carried out extensive undercover surveillance of Muslims in New York, New Jersey and Long Island. The NYPD developed one of the biggest domestic intelligence agencies in the country and targeted U.S. citizens based solely on their religion or ethnicity. New York's Mayor Michael Bloomberg is unapologetic in defending his police department. Everything the New York City Police Department has done is legal, it is appropriate, it is constitutional, and that's why terrorists want to destroy us. We threaten them because we actually practice what we preach. This is Vice News Reports, and I'm your host, Ariel Dimros. This week marks 20 years since the terrorist attacks on September 11th, 2001. Two decades later, 9-11 is less than a day and more of an era. An event that catalyzed countless effects, reverberating beyond the weeks, months, and years that followed. For Muslim Americans, that's perhaps distinctly true. After the attacks, religious, racial, and ethnic profiling of these communities became so widespread that it fundamentally changed what it meant to be Muslim in America. So this week, I'm handing the show off to Asad Dandia, a Brooklyn native whose life dramatically changed when, as a teenager, he was surveilled by a unit of the New York City Police Department. My name is Asad Dandia. I'm a Brooklyn nationalist. It's the first thing you'll see in my Twitter bio. I've spent my entire life here. I'm 28 years old. My parents immigrated to Brooklyn in the 80s, southern Brooklyn to be specific. I was born in Coney Island Hospital and raised in the community of Brighton Beach. So I grew up around Pakistanis, Yemenis, Mexicans, Uzbeks, Tajiks, Albanians, big Russian population, a working class immigrant community. I was... Eight years old, going on nine, on September 11th, 2001. My family had just returned from a trip to Pakistan, actually. So we had, we had just visited family. We go every two or three years. And I actually got sick from the trip. I, I think I ate some, like, cart food that, that made me unwell. So I was actually hospitalized for a couple of weeks. That's how bad it was. And I do remember seeing images of the tower and the smoke, wondering what was going on and hearing shouting. My mother was getting into fights with some of the nurses and hospital attendees about 9-11. Who are the perpetrators? Should we go after the perpetrators? Um, Is there something inherently wrong with the religion? And it actually shocked me because a lot of these people were tending to my health. You know, it was, was I guess, a harbinger of things to come. And within the first few years of 9-11, I just started noticing that people who would attend my mosque were not there anymore. You know, religious mentors and instructors, some friends or, or, or distant acquaintances, you know, just were no longer there. In the months after September 11, hundreds of Muslims with no link to terrorism were arrested. These are people who were working in, you know, as cab drivers, working in the service industry, construction workers. The Pakistani community has been particularly hard hit. To have the government deem you suspect um, just raised the anxiety bar to entirely new heights. 
And because of that fear and because of that anxiety, some people figured it, it, they'd just be safer to, you know, to pack their bags and, and, and leave. Between 40 and 50 percent of the 120,000 Pakistanis who lived in the area before September 11th have been detained, deported, or simply left the area. I was, again, 8, 9, 10, 11 years old, so I wasn't really sh- sure what was happening and why it was happening. Going into college, that's when I really started leaning into my practice, like really taking my faith seriously, you know, going to the mosque even for the morning prayers, which is at 5 or 6 in the morning. That's when I started to think more deeply about these things, like, wow, you know, I'm practicing a religion that right now is on the radar. What does that mean for me? and my family and the people around me. But nobody really thinks that they specifically are being followed. Nobody thinks that there's an empty car in front of their mosque or their home with a 24-hour camera monitoring them. And nobody thinks that there is someone in their immediate friend circle who is employed by the police to watch their every move. And just like everyone else, I didn't think it could happen to me. But then, 2011... AP reports unveiled numerous instances of the NYPD eavesdropping and spying on Muslim communities. The Associated Press put out reports saying that there is a large clandestine surveillance network of plainclothes officers in the tri-state area under the NYPD's watch. You've called the NYPD one of America's most aggressive domestic intelligence agencies. What was the New York City Police Department doing? They have a program called the the Demographics Unit, which the NYPD originally denied even existed. They are building these profiles of where Muslims live, eat, shop, pray, where they watch sports, where they go to internet cafes. In one case, the NYPD sent an undercover agent on a whitewater rafting trip where he recorded students' names and noted in police intelligence files how many times they prayed. I remember going to class that day. And this was a class on politics of the Arab world. And after those reports came out, my professor, who was of Egyptian origin, he showed the reports to us on his, on his screen. And he asked students, anyone who is not officially registered for the class, I'm sorry I have to do this, but I have to ask you to leave. Because unless you are officially registered, I don't know who you are or if you're working for the police. And so it's for my own safety. And so I remember sitting in college, having to watch, you know, six or seven curious college students get up and leave the classroom because the professor was afraid that one of them may have potentially been a government informant. The reports of the surveillance confirmed what many of us already suspected. But now we were like, okay, this is this is actually happening. It's like, wow, this this is real. This is really real. So I'm in college, you know, I want to say 18 years old, 19 years old, somewhere in that range. And one of my friends and I, uh, we wanted to basically start an initiative where we 
offered services to the people in our communities whom we knew needed help. It's like mutual aid before mutual aid became the Vogue thing. And we got a couple of guys from our local mosque. And the idea was very simple. You take a bunch of people, we each pool in maybe 10 to $20, whatever allowance you know, we had or whatever we were making from our internships. Once or twice a week, we buy food with it and we distribute it to the homeless or to the families whom we knew needed help. And we just decided, like, this is something small that we're able to do. Why don't we give it a shot? And we started advertising our work on social media, Facebook at the time. And, you know, we started picking up a lot of momentum. We were a volunteer-based organization. So students across New York City started messaging me, Muslim students in particular, started messaging me saying that they want to get involved. So I was like, yeah, sure, you're more than welcome. We usually meet on Fridays after the Friday prayer. You know, bring a couple dollars if you have. We're going to go out and buy groceries afterwards. And in March of 2012, this young man from Jackson Heights named Shamir, Shamir Rahman, messaged me wanting to get involved with our community. He said he came from, you know, a troubled background, and he was just looking for a better path in life. And I happily welcomed him, just like I would welcome anybody else. Right? I got these requests very often. And he joined me that week, that Friday. We had Chinese food at the No Pork Halal Fried Chicken. Uh, or No Pork Halal Fried Kitchen. I don't remember the name. But it's called No Pork Halal, um, which sadly is not there anymore. But, you know, at the time, it was about six or seven of us, so he took all of our contact information to stay in touch with us. And we continued doing the work that we were doing thereafter, hosting events at local mosques, charity drives, blood drives, so on and so forth. But our bread and butter was delivering groceries. And Shamir was always available. He was always willing to come out all the way from Jackson Heights, Queens to Southern Brooklyn to spend time with me. I began to introduce him to more of my friends. He started to attend more of our events. Then in April of 2012, someone from my local community in Southern Brooklyn whom in many ways was sort of like an older brother figure to a lot of us growing up at the time, sends me a text message asking me if I'm going to be present at the evening prayer, the Maghrib prayer, as we call it. And I told him, yeah, I'd be there. So we meet up after the evening prayer. We're walking towards his car. This person happened to be a police officer at the time. And he asks me if I have my phone on me. And I tell him, yeah, I have my phone on me. And I give him my phone. And he takes his phone. And he wraps them both in a cloth. And he opens up his car trunk and he throws a cloth with both of our phones in it into the trunk, closes the trunk and says, I need to speak to you without these present. So I was like, okay, he has something very important to tell me. He starts driving and we do our little, you know, chit chat. And he eventually parks his car somewhere. And he says, I said, I just came back from the precinct. Listen, there is a file with your name and your photos in it. You're being watched. I'm risking my job telling you this. I know you're not doing anything wrong. The community knows you're not doing anything wrong. But please just be careful.
you know, I'm sitting there, put yourself in the shoes of a 19-year-old community college student. I don't know if I had a panic attack. I'm, like, I'm not sure, honestly. I don't even remember like, what was going through my head at the time, not knowing who to call. There's no way I'm going to tell my mom and dad. I can't report it to the police because they're the ones who are perpetrating it. And I'm afraid of texting anyone anything because I don't want that to be recorded either. So I called one of my, my, my close friends in, in the neighborhood who was part of the organization the next day, and we talked about it. The question that came up, should we stop what we're doing? And we were like, listen, we're not doing anything wrong. We're like literally delivering rice and milk to poor people. There's no reason for us to stop what we were doing. But I started to draw the connections. He carried out extensive undercover surveillance. The biggest in domestic York. intelligence Hundreds of Muslims with no link to terrorism deported. were arrested. Aggressive domestic intelligence. police intelligence files how many times they prayed. I was like, okay, I'm one of the people who are included in this gigantuan surveillance operation. Like, goddamn, they have a file with my name and my photos in it. Now it's concrete. Now I know what's happening to me specifically. Um, you know, I knew that we were being spied on, and I didn't know what that looked like. Even then, it was like, okay, maybe it's someone who goes to our public events. Can't be someone who's like, you know, coming, sleeping over my place. And in... In, in our Islamic faith, to suspect someone without any sort of like real evidence is regarded as a major, major sin. Like you're not supposed to do that because it breeds mistrust and it can really break relationships. So for me, even raising the question about someone close to my circle being a spy raised a lot of deep theological and spiritual tension. I don't want to suspect a good friend of being a government agent like I don't want to do that it's you know it's it's not something you should be doing right it's not how any it's not something anyone should be doing we shouldn't it's not how we should live our lives so I wasn't even willing to entertain the question and throughout this time Shamir was embedded in our friends group he drew closer to us in this time I invited him over to my home he met my parents he ate my mother's home-cooked meal I knew that he was struggling, and so I invited him to my place to sleep over, a small little apartment. And at night, we were reflecting over our lives, and we prayed together, and we cried together. And Shamir slowly became one of the friends that I deeply trusted. And October of 2012, I'm coming home from a delivery, and I get a text telling me to check Facebook. And so I was like, okay, I check Facebook. And I see a status from Shamir Rahman. I was an informant working for the NYPD sent to investigate terrorism. And I recall my hands just dropping, my phone dropped. My friend and I, we both said our prayers right then and there and we just sat there quietly. We'll be right back. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. It's finally time to get Irish business moving again with Europe Car and Go Car. For a small business planning a big move or growing businesses with growing needs, get a vehicle at short notice nationwide without the pain of a long-term contract. Move with flexible fleet sizes and flexible rental periods because flexibility is everything right now. We give you all of the advantages of using a fleet with none of the hassle of owning one. Visit europecar.ie. Europe Car and Go Car. Moving your way. If I could be you. And you could be me. For just one hour. If you could find a way. To get inside each other's mind. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. Welcome We've all felt left out. And for some, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Walk a mile in my shoes. Not completing high school is more of a social thing than it was an academic thing. Even though all these years have passed, I still had that longing to have my diploma. At age 30, Carissa finished her high school diploma. If you're even considering getting your high school diploma, you can do it. No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. That's finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. The immediate aftermath, at my local mosque, I was asked to stop fundraising. We were asked not to sort of discuss political issues anymore, not just at the mosque, but also at student MSAs, Muslim Student Associations. This was also the time of the Arab Spring. We're all 18, 19, 20 years old. We're going to these protests for Egypt, for Syria, for Tunisia. We're going to Zakodi Park. And, you know, when you're developing your political consciousness, you know, that might mean anti-establishment politics. That might mean radical politics, right? Like being careful about what you're posting online because you don't want to get in trouble. You don't want to be deemed suspect, even when you're doing nothing wrong. The fear and the paranoia of being watched, it, it, it looks like when you're going to school or work, taking a different direction every other day. It looks like looking over your shoulder. It looks like asking who's going to be at any social gathering before committing to it. It looks like your parents, well into your mid to late 20s, asking you where you're going and who you're meeting with and telling you not to not to make too many friends anymore. It looks like seeing like your mother losing her sleep. 
a deep sense of guilt overtook me after the confession because I was the center of the friends group. I was the one who was inviting and welcoming new people into our circles. Why didn't I see this coming? Why didn't I stop it? Why didn't I take these precautionary measures? I brought this upon our community. I felt people drifting away from me. You could sense it. Like they'll give you, they'll give you your salam alaikum, you know, greeting out of courtesy, but after that they don't really want anything to do with you. Well, why did the cops spy on you, right? That's a thought that I felt like that was going through their heads. You must have been doing something. It's one thing to be labeled suspicious by an entity, right? Um, you know, if it's the cops spying on you, it's like, okay, they're bastards. They, this is what they do. Um, but it's another thing to be labeled suspicious by your own community and your own people. And I think that's what actually hurt. A couple of weeks after the confession, I get an email from an attorney telling me that they want to speak to me. Hey, we've been working on a lawsuit since these reports came out in 2011. We're interested in your story and we, we believe it'd make a compelling case in our lawsuit. We're talking to a number of community members, asking them if they'd be also willing to join. And I'll be honest with you, I felt like I was being recruited to the Avengers. Our lawsuit shows that since 2002, the NYPD has carried out a policy and practice based on a false and unconstitutional premise that Muslim religious belief and practices are a basis for law enforcement scrutiny. So in 2013, now I'm 20, right? My lawyers are like, okay, we're getting ready to file this thing. And that June, I had a, I had a family trip to Mecca, and we were going to make a min- the minor pilgrimage, the Umrah pilgrimage, which you can make any time of the year. And we had decided on June 18th. So my lawyers were like, okay, June 18th it is, the day of your pilgrimage. That's when we were going to officially file and give a press conference in front of one police plaza which is the NYPD headquarters. This suit seeks to enforce two of the Constitution's most fundamental guarantees, freedom from discrimination and freedom of religion. I saw like maybe 25-some microphones in front of me, all of my community leaders and mentors behind me and, and hundreds of people around me. And all I remember is dozens of cameras just clicking. And that's when I realized, oh, crap, this is going to make it to national news. Number one, I was terrified and I was afraid for my family, especially for my younger sister who were exposed to all of this. I felt betrayed and hurt because someone who I took as a, a friend and a brother was lying to me. I think I cried. It's really embarrassing. And an hour later, I was on my way to the airport. The departure was not so bad in terms of the questioning that we received. It's really the return that was hell on earth for me. When our family landed in JFK, there were two federal agents at the gates of the airplane waiting for us to basically leave the plane. The first person's passport they saw from my family was my sister. They both looked at each other like, hey, we got our guy. Come with us, sir. They take us into the interrogation room. Then saw brown people there. Ironically, we bumped into one of our neighbors in the interrogation room, coming from Canada. 
They do the whole good cop, bad cop routine as they're checking your luggage. So one guy asks you more like regular questions about who you are, what you do. And the other guy asks you more provocative questions about, um, you know, did you travel over to Yemen when you were there and come back? And so the federal agents were involved now. I think that's when I, that's when I fell into a very deep sense of guilt and anxiety and depression. Since 9-11, there hasn't been a successful terrorist attack in New York, and the Quinnipiac University poll shows that New York City voters are reacting well to this. 82% tell Quinnipiac that they think the cops are doing a good job against the terrorists. Well, what about the fuss about are they picking on Muslims? No. New Yorkers tell Quinnipiac they don't think that the cops are treating Muslims unfairly. 99% of the Muslims are, I'm sure, good patriotic Americans, but the threat is coming from their community, and I would think they would want to have this. They would want to have the assistance of the police and the FBI. The NYPD's attorneys, they wrote very horrible things about us in their letters to the court, trying to justify why uh, my co-plaintiffs and I uh, were being watched. It was really, really, really traumatizing to read those letters that they wrote about us that, you know, tabloids republishing those letters. Islamophobes, you know, notorious Islamophobes, writing hit pieces about us. It was really hard, you know, I was worried if I'd ever find a job. And I remember there was a night where my mom had to go to the emergency room because of her blood pressure. And I highly suspect it was because of fear of what if the police come after you because you're standing up to the NYPD they have all the resources in the world I'm a 19 year old community college student you know I might have a if I even had a bank account at the time maybe a couple hundred dollars in it it's a lot to take as she was like why are you picking a fight with them um, you know you should focus on your career right as any immigrant mother would right I also learned in 2015, as the lawsuit was ongoing, that Shamir was telling his handler that these guys are not doing anything. But his handler kept sending him back. Stay with them, keep doing it, keep, keep, keep spying on them. It's crazy, crazy stuff to me if you think about it. The lawsuit continued for several years and in 2016, we were finally nearing a settlement. The announcement of a deal following months of negotiations formally ended litigation over accusations that the nation's largest police department cast a shadow over Muslim communities with a covert campaign of religious profiling and illegal spying. The settlement became policy. As part of the settlement, the NYPD agreed to never again subject an entire religious community to open-ended investigations. And after it became policy, we declared it a victory. We think that this is a landmark settlement. What it does is, for the first time, there are much-needed reforms that have been put in place to prevent discriminatory, unjustified surveillance of American Muslims. Our names were not going to be in the mud, and we were going to get significant policy changes on the surveillance. The first policy changes ever to be enacted since 9-11 and that we were going to set a precedent for the rest of the country. One of the policy changes that, that emerged was that the NYPD would no longer be allowed to initiate an investigation of surveillance where race, religion, or ethnicity are a substantial or motivating factor. 
In other words, it's not just about protecting Muslims. Race, religion, ethnicity, that applies to all minorities. And I was so proud of that. For us, that was the end of one battle and the start of many more because that was not the end of it. I think Islam hates us. There's something, there's something there that there's a tremendous hatred there. There's a tremendous hatred. We have to get to the bottom of it. There is an unbelievable hatred of us. In, in Islam itself? Uh, you're gonna have to figure that out. So now we're in 2021, right? It's been 20 years since uh, the September 11th attacks. And here I am still in the belly of the beast in the heart of where it all happened having witnessed all these transformations uh, in my community and in, in the city as a whole, a lot has changed. And what has changed is that uh, the Muslim community, nationally, but also the Muslim community in New York, our community has grown. We've developed more institutions. We've developed a lot more confidence in ourselves. But at the same time, the threat has also grown. The threat has adjusted itself to the circumstances, right? The threat has adapted and in many ways gotten worse or stronger. I think both of these things can be true, right? They can happen on, 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 on a parallel track. It still hurts because you think about all that could have become if this didn't happen to us. There was so much potential and that potential because of what was done to our community was squandered. And we've only just begun to try to recover from it. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Hi, friends. I'm Hector Navarro. And I'm Frankie Grande. We're your hosts for SpongeBob Binge Pants, Nickelodeon's podcast celebrating all things SpongeBob Universe. We have the privilege that not many SpongeBob fans get. This being an official Nickelodeon podcast, we get to interview the brilliant humans behind the names we've all been reading in those credits for over 20 years. This is a podcast by fans for fans. Listen to SpongeBob Binge Pants on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. River Cafe Table 4 is a brand new podcast with me, Ruthie Rogers, the founder and chef of the River Cafe in London. River Cafe Table 4 takes us on a food journey around the world with friends like Paul McCartney. John Lennon and I hitchhiked to Paris. 
And we thought, oh, we've got to have a wine experience. We're in France. And we took a sip and thought, that is terrible. It's like vinegar. So join us at River Cafe Table 4 to hear this brand new podcast all about their memories, their travels, and the food they turn to for comfort. Listen to River Cafe Table 4 on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I asked what kind of family she wanted. She said, a family like yours. Learn more about adopting a teen at AdoptUSKids.org. You can't imagine the reward. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. reached out to multiple federal agencies and the NYPD. The FBI declined to comment, and the NYPD, DHS, and CBP did not respond to our questions. And while Assad's lawsuit did bring about policy changes, the NYPD has denied all the allegations that they targeted people on the basis of religion and never admitted to any wrongdoing or liability. Vice News Reports is produced by Jesse Alejandro Cutrell, Sophie Kazis, Jen Kinney, Janice Yamoka, Julia Nutter, and Sayer Cavedo. Our senior producers are Ashley Cleek and Adiza Egan. Our associate producers are Sam Egan and Adriana Rodriguez. Sound design and music composition by Steve Bone, Pran Bandy, and Kyle Murdoch. Our intern is Leili Resvani. Our executive producer and VP of Vice Audio is Kate Osborne. Janet Lee is Senior Production Manager for Vice Audio. Production Coordination by Steph Brown. Fact-checking by Nicole Basulka. Our theme music is by Steve Bone. From iHeart Executive Producers, Nikki Etor and Lindsay Hoffman. I'm Ariel Zuemros. Podcast hosts say this all the time, I say this all the time, but please take the time to rate and review this podcast. It really does help other people find the show. Vice News Reports drops every Thursday, so be sure to check back in next week. Hi, I'm Liam. You're probably wondering, what do me and Cadbury Snack Sandwich have in common? Well, we're both wonderfully ordinary. Like right now, I'm doing some gardening and listening to my favourite radio show. How wonderfully ordinary is that? Cadbury Snack Sandwich, the purple snack. A wonderfully ordinary biscuit with just a delicious layer of Cadbury chocolate sandwiched between two shortcake squares. Available in a store near you. Hi, I'm Vanessa Bayer and this is my brother Jonah. We're two siblings who love to talk about our childhood and nostalgia and how it shaped us into the people we are today. Who are extremely cool and chill if I do say so myself. In our new podcast, How Did We Get Weird? We'll talk about our favorite snacks, shows, and obsessions from growing up with some of your favorite comedians, musicians, and other A-list celebrities. Sorry, we're major. Listen to How Did We Get Weird from Will Ferrell's Big Money Players Network. Available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. How do airplanes fly? What's in this box? What does this thing do? Kids are curious about everything, including guns. Learn how to store your gun securely and make your home safer at nfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by N Family Fire, Brady, and the Ad Council.